Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike One, co-host also, Mike, in a moment, as we are both here to tell you about what's become an Oscars Week tradition for us, as we are lucky enough to have Scott Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter join us for the Feinberg Final Oscars preview here on MMO. Yes, read all of his stuff at HollywoodReporter.com. He's the Oscarologist. Uh, he writes the Feinberg forecast. He makes the predictions that are much wiser than ours. If you're betting, use his predictions. Don't use ours. Uh, but look, I mean, we we have loved Scott Feinberg for years, going all the way back to dorm rooms and, and, and reading his Oscars coverage. Uh, I just, I'm so proud and so happy that he's been on this show a few times and that we're making this an annual tradition. So, Listen, his Oscars issue at The Hollywood Reporter drops today. He's got the final Feinberg forecast coming out. He's got the brutally honest Oscars ballot. These are just must-reads every single year. Buy that issue, read that issue, love that Oscars issue from The Hollywood Reporter. He is certainly an inspiration uh, for us and why we started MMO in the first place. And you can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Feinberg, F-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, or Scott underscore Feinberg over on Instagram. You can also give The Hollywood Reporter a follow at the letter T, the letter H, the letter R on Twitter, and at Hollywood Reporter, no the, on Instagram. Otherwise, we're going to spend the rest of this intro highlighting the Hollywood Reporter and Scott's Awards Chatter podcast, which he was just phenomenal in all year long. Yeah, we got a list of highlights here. We got to list them off because, I mean, and we, we had to whittle this list down because the, ish, the, the episodes were just so damn good all year long. Will Ferrell told some hilarious college stories that mm-hmm. you just got to listen to at the beginning of that show. Uh, we learned that Michelle Pfeiffer was a problem child. She hated authority. It was fascinating. Uh, <laughs> listen to how Anthony Hopkins just up and quit acting. Can you imagine? Uh, before he even <laughs> got on camera for The Lion in Winter. Uh, in the middle of, of Scott's episodes, they were great too. Like, Mike, when, when Sophia Lauren taught us how to pronounce her name, it was a short, quick moment, but I swelled with so much pride at being an Italian, I can't tell you. Uh, Something you'll remember Italians. forever. I love Sophia Loren. Yeah, no, never forget it. Uh, I, I was also, I was not expecting the Andrew Day episode to be like yeah. one of his funniest. I mean, she probably had Scott laughing the hardest we've heard uh, him laugh all year. Yeah, she, she was great. And also, just of personal note, the Ben Affleck conversation he had, uh, one of the nice. best that Scott's done. And Scott, you know, Mike, we're not speaking hyperbolically. He's truly one of the best interviewers in the game. We're going to touch on his process as we get through this episode here. Uh, Awards Chatter always does well on the outros, too, and landing the plane. Uh, The most recent casting story and experiences with the nominated film and the subject of the interview. For example, Stephen Yoon shared that wonderful father-son moment about the Minari premiere with Scott. Uh, Gary Oldman talked about finally embracing awards seasons, which he's been a little bristled to in the past. And Zendaya, uh, 
uh, doesn't seem to have an off switch, which we learned by listening to Awards Chatter as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if you're listening to us, you got to listen to THR Awards Chatter. Uh, it's it's our favorite show, period. And uh, I just I had a blast all year staying up with it. It's 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 appointment listening on a weekly basis. Apple Podcasts, he's available uh, wherever you may listen, rate and review him for sure. So please hear this interview and subscribe because it's not us on the other end. Scott's always awesome, but it's it's world famous movie stars on the other end of a war. <laughs> it's just you know it's not two schlubs from Connecticut. <laughs> In, in this case. But no, we have, we have a lot of fun in this one. Yeah, absolutely. This is a loaded Feinberg final here today, and we're going to ask him not only about this year's race, but we'll have a ton of burning questions about how he does what he does, about the industry, about COVID. It's all coming up, so enjoy our Feinberg final Oscars preview with Scott Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter on Mike, Mike, and Oscar, and we will see you all on the other side. All right, on the line, Scott Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter. We are fortunate enough to welcome him for the third year in a row for our Oscar Week talk. Scott, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Nice to talk to you. Likewise, and so you were both extremely generous enough and also had the misfortune to be one of our very first interview guests three years ago when we started our our Oscar season interviews. I jokingly, right off the top then, asked you who would win Best Picture, but that joke has become legitimized, and now it's kind of a tradition for us, so there's no more appropriate way I can think of to start this conversation than to ask you once again, Scott, who's winning Best Picture this year? Well, let me just say, it's uh, it's become a scary thing to talk about with you guys because the last couple of years we've had some crazy surprises in a way i mean i i would say last year in particular uh many of us kind of thought it was possible but but uh, unlikely that parasite would win and then of mm. course it did and the year before that i believe was green book and that beating roma was certainly not a sure thing and uh I, look I, I all i can tell you is that at this point all of the important indicators, as you know, point towards Nomadland winning. Um, mm-hmm. It swept everything for which it was eligible, and I am, I am excluding the SAG Ensemble Award, not because it wasn't technically eligible, but it's basically a one-woman show with other people having some nice parts, but it's, it was never going to compete for Best Ensemble, so I don't know if you can fault it for not having been nominated for that. Uh, at the same time, we have to acknowledge that when there have been big upsets in the past, it has often been a movie that won Best Ensemble SAG, maybe nothing else, um, en route to the Oscars. So literally in each decade that the SAG Awards has existed, we've seen that with Shakespeare in Love as a surprise, with uh, Crash, with uh, Spotlight, and then last year with Parasite. So Hmm. This year, the winner of the SAG Ensemble Award was the Trial of Chicago 7, which may well play uh, better on a preferential ballot than it does on a straight vote. So I I won't tell you, especially after the last couple of years, that I'm supremely confident that Nomadland is going to win. But I think that I would not feel more confident making any other picks. So that's where we are here uh, heading into the end of the craziest Oscar season we've all ever been a part of, or anyone has been a part of. It was certainly the craziest and the longest 
but uh, the the Feinberg forecast, you, your nomination predictions were right on again. You beat our ass handedly this year. No, <laughs> no surprise well, there. Thank you. I I, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't going to bring that up, but if uh, <laughs> you know. so, there's like another annual tradition here of us asking you how you make predictions and trying to steal the knowledge and steal the power somehow. <laughs> uh, but this is actually a loaded question this year due to the pandemic, because I imagine that you could kind of work the phones, but obviously you couldn't work the room or the room, so to speak. Uh, you could research history, but like you're saying, I mean, how much in a weird year do the stats or trends typically matter i mean you're always weighing that so we're dying to know if your forecasting methods may have changed uh due to this weird year due to the pandemic well you're very perceptive i mean there's absolutely it's uh, it's been very different and much harder to gauge just uh anecdotal uh stuff i mean because as you say we're not we're not in the lunches and dinners and q and a's and cocktail parties and other award mm. shows and all of that, that we normally uh, see people at where you can, you know, even if it's not necessarily a representative scientific sample of the entire Academy, you can kind of get a vibe of what people are focused on, what they're not focused on this year. Uh, you know, it's incredibly hard because not only are they not gathering together in that way, but they're also not seeing the same things. Like if you go out and, uh, Hollywood normally you can go and see what movies are being heavily promoted on billboards or um, bus stop stations and all of that kind of thing uh, and until very recently certainly you know phase two most people were not going out period and so none of that stuff was moving the needle and in a way what you would assume that would that would mean is that it kind of flattens the competition makes it a little more uh, even that, you know, it's just going to be about the quality of the movies and not about, you know, how effectively people are marketed to or any of that. But I guess, you know, it's, it's the, the flip side is that I have found just in reaching out to voters that many of them are probably for all of those reasons, less engaged with this whole season. They feel less invested huh. in the outcome. They've been distracted with other things, obviously. And so I think that, not that the Academy will ever tell us this or confirm it, but I would guess that you're going to have record low voter participation this year. Um, I think voters have seen fewer movies than ever, even though they've been more available than ever on the Academy streaming service, on other streaming services. Um, it's like with the general public, you know, it was very available to them too, but without being in movie theaters and without being marketed to in the usual ways, I think people are just less engaged. And so, um, it's definitely changed everything. And we've seen different years and the calendar shifting in previous Oscars years have different effects on the outcome. And yet on the Feinberg forecast, at least the latest one, you're still very high on Nomadland in multiple categories. Has anything happened to kind of reassure you going into this final week now or with voting coming to a close? Or are you more trepidatious than ever because of the fluky calendar, the the accessibility of the movies, even though it's out there, like you said, people may not be watching. Are you just kind of throwing your hands up or is this more, are you more honed into something out there that gives you reassurance about these other categories for Nomad? Well, I, I think it kind of relates to what we were just talking about with voters having seen fewer movies and that if there is uh, one that they've seen based on the 
early buzz and early, other award shows and all of the whatever they might have heard via the news, it would certainly have been Nomadland. Now, that doesn't mm. mean they didn't also uh, prioritize Trial of Chicago 7 or Minari or a few others. But I think based on the fact that, that Nomadland has dominated the, the season, that has put it on everyone's radar. Now, the, the flip side of that dynamic is that it's been a very long season that Nomadland has been the front runner, And as we saw, I think, the year with La La Land, for example, people do sometimes just tire of the same narrative or uh, a film becomes more vulnerable when it's when it's been a target for that long. And, you know, I think that that is always a, a danger, especially in a season as long as this, that people just either, you know, they just kind of lose interest in in that storyline or, or whatever. But I don't I think the problem uh, for any competitor is that there is no one to me, obvious alternative. Again, Trial has mm-hmm. uh, some people talking because it's sort of a general crowd pleaser with a big cast and all that, and so maybe it's maybe it's a number two or three for a lot of people, um, whereas Nomadland is a number one or maybe not high at all for, for other people. But I just I don't think that it's spectacular enough to take down Nomadland. We'll, we'll, I may have to eat those words, but I mean, obviously one warning sign was the fact that directors didn't nominate it. Not not necessarily The Kiss of Death, which we saw where Argo and Green Book still won in, in recent years, but mm-hmm. uh, never a good sign. Um, and only Sasha Baron Cohen from the cast got nominated. He's unlikely to win. So it's, and it's also not even clear, let's say Trial of Chicago 7 uh potentially one best picture. I don't know what other award it would necessarily win with it. I guess if it turns out there's that, you know, that much affection for it, maybe it would also eke out a uh, screenplay for Sorkin, maybe film editing, but to have a movie win with just one or maybe no other wins uh, aside from picture that, that would be a very rare dynamic. And I guess this is the the final follow up here with Best Picture. I'm wondering if there's hope for a, a, a high tower surprise because this year has been so long. And Mike and I said from the beginning, like we didn't know the effects that it would have. And and like you have been, you know, saying all along, something weird could happen. Like I I can't imagine this year finishing with just all chalk. And Mike and I have been following the uh, gambling lines because we're degenerates uh but also <laughs> but look wait we we've been following these gambling lines for a while from Vegas and usually the number 3 and the number 4 movie have a closer uh a closer chance right they have better odds right. this year promising young woman and minari are plus 1500 plus 1800 15 to 1 18 to 1 it's ridiculous how far away they are so i'm wondering if if any awards on the night, you mentioned film editing that could go Trial of Chicago 7's way. We saw the BAFTAs pick The Father instead of Nomadland, an adapted screenplay. Anything else happening on the night that would give you that alarm bell? Like uh, for Mike and I, it was Parasite winning original screenplay last year that we thought Tarantino might still take at the end of the day after the WGA. It didn't happen. Parasite had opened up its chances, at least in our minds, during the show. Is there anything that's going to happen during this particular show that may, may make you think that they're going to spread the love and maybe not uh, Nomadland? Yeah, I think the, oh. 
screenplay category is often a, a interesting bellwether. And I think, as you say, you know, that was the case last year. And I think that if we see this year, Nomadland not win best adapted screenplay, if they do what BAFTA did and they give it to the father or what WGA did admittedly without all the competition there, but they went with Borat. I mean, if something weird happens and Nomadland does not win best adapted screenplay, that would be disconcerting. I mean, it's something I believe eight of the last 10 best picture winners also won one of the uh, screenplay categories. It's just sort of, if you like a movie enough to put it at the top or high on your best picture ballot, you'll probably like its script as well most of the time. And I would think that if Nomadland does not win best staff screenplay, that's a problem. If trial of Chicago seven does not win best original screenplay, which I don't anticipate, I think it would probably be promising young woman by a, by a little bit. Um, then that's probably the end of it for trial of Chicago seven in terms of being a threat. But again, the, the, the complication of course, is that we're dealing with the preferential ballot for best picture. And so all of this can give a false, alarm early on um i i think the one that has seemed to be a late um breaking one with with some momentum that may not have been reflected in some of these precursor awards is judas and the black messiah and i do think that would do well on a preferential ballot as well and i also know from looking at the same odds on uh websites that i believe you're looking at Nobody is giving Judas and the Black Messiah a chance. I think it's like five plus five thousand or something. I mean, it's like something like that. Somebody yeah. could make a lot of money if if that happens. But I, I'm not saying I would predict it. But I also don't think it's like any crazier necessarily than or much crazier than trial being a uh, preferential ballot beneficiary. I'm going to have to run to my nearest sports book after we hang up here. You gave me a little hope there. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. All right. So to, to move on to, to kind of the industry at large and off best picture specifically, you've already mentioned how you had to adapt to the pandemic and you've taken yep. some of your Q and A's online. Uh, there's been the whole, the Hollywood reporter has had to adapt. The industry at large has obviously had to adapt to the pandemic. I'm curious as to the FYC campaigns and nobody would know better than you, do you think anything worked specifically? Do you think anything that studios tried as far as for your consideration campaigns flopped or, and more specifically, I guess, is there any, maybe one change that you think was a means of adapting to the pandemic that you think is here to stay now as the new normal in terms of how studios market for the Oscars? It's a good question. I mean, I think that there were very creative things like doing drive-ins at big venues and things like that, which, were smart and may have helped in a regional way. But the problem is that as the academies become more and more international, I don't know that that really moves the needle when you've got so many people who are not even on the continent where these kinds of things are being offered. I think Mm -hmm. what's been probably most effective this season, uh, even, even if people are just sick of zoom generally are some of the zoom offerings where you know, Netflix in particular has adapted where it's you're not just getting on Zoom in the way that it looks like when you're on with your family, but they've found ways of kind of sprucing it up so that people can ask ask questions and um, and, you know, be on camera in some cases with the voters or show, you know, 
three people talking instead of everybody in a bot. Like there's, it's not, it's not something that I think is going to be the way people opt to campaign in years to come if they can avoid it. But it, it's, it's a way where you do something and you get, you know, you avoid the geographical limitations of doing something in person, which, you know, I think that's also why podcasts, uh, they've been valued maybe more than in some years past because it's like, how do you just reach the most number of people at a time when you can't actually do it in person? And so I think the, the web has been, you know, the, the obvious answer to that. Saved <laughs> our lives this year and your podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, p- pandemic be damned awards chatter was as good as ever. <laughs> it had a banner year. And this is, this question is going to start off like sounding like what we usually do as your acolytes and, and sycophants here, but it's actually going to become very selfish very quickly because, like, look, we, we had a dueling list of favorite awards chatter episodes that we're going, to, we're, we're going to talk about in the intro, outro, and exchanges from your shows, and they come from different parts of every episode. And you've talked about on our show your goals of researching your interviews enough to draw out new and unique information and stories that we've never heard before somehow from all of these stars and nominees, most of whom have been giving nothing but interviews a thousand times over their whole <laughs> careers. So it's like this impossible task that you somehow managed to, to, to conquer. So like this year, I'm, I'm dying to ask you about how you format and structure these conversations, which they literally span everybody's entire lives, like biopics in some instances, but they also build to the present award season. It's got to be more than you just kind of honing in on highlights and lowlights. It's got to be, you know, you've, I'm sure you've cultivated instincts, but you've got to have some principles that you follow. And secretly, I hope it's not just all instinct because then there's no hope for us. So please, <laughs> what, what's your approach to structuring these interviews? Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you guys listening. And uh, I think that, look, I mean, the first thing as we may have talked about before is that there's a, a list of sources that I found to be useful and reliable. And I just print out everything I can find from New York Times, LA Times, you know, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Guardian, Interview Magazine, NPR, um, you know, and a handful of others for each each guest and it's basically there's no shortcut it's like uh uh several days of just pouring over everything these people have ever said um and getting a very good understanding of their story myself taking notes on that you know getting rid of the pages on which i didn't take any notes so that i can only you know then i have makes my pile look less intimidating and i take that pile of paper and and organize it into a uh basically a chronological almost like timeline of important moments and things in in the guest's life and then you shape it i mean you know we start each episode with a real basic just where were you born and raised what did your parents do for a living partly because i think it conditions subliminally conditions the guests to know that we're going to be going in depth we're going to go right back to the you know into the early parts of their history and so even though that's readily available information for anyone it just sort of sets the tone of the conversation and then you hit them with stuff that actually reflects your level of research so that they, at, at which point I found that most people, David Crosby excluded, tend to appreciate. <laughs> I was hoping you'd bring that Obviously, you know, a lot of work that went into it and then they, and that they don't have to state the obvious 
you know, basics and they will therefore give you more because they know that you've done the work. And so it's like, it's a, it's a dance. If they see that you are able to have a deeper conversation with them and wanting to have a deeper conversation with them, they will usually, you know, everyone is sort of flattered and appreciative that if somebody took the time to, to prepare for whatever it is with, with, with them. And so uh, I, I do think that is the essential ingredient. Well, uh, I do. Uh, I've said many times with you on the air and without, everybody needs to listen to that David Crosby interview anyway, because it's a masterclass <laughs> in professionalism on your part. But I'm, I'm glad you did bring that up. But let's go from what you write, from what you talk about to what you write about. And obviously, it's been a difficult year for numerous reasons, not least of which has been issues of equality and systemic oppression within the industry specifically. You were one of the first people, you were one of the flag bearers about really not pulling any punches when it came to the Golden Globes and the HFPA's nominations and their nominating process uh, for this year's Golden Globes. And I, I was, you know, we do view you as an inspiration. And I was overjoyed to see that. And I saw a lot of journalists fall in line and follow suit. But you certainly were one of the people on the front lines of that in terms of publishing a piece on a major platform to do that. Now, the HFPA has claimed they will reform obviously, uh, but we continue to learn all these daily truths about just how their organization has functioned over the years, and that culminated again today in something you wrote, I think it was either yesterday or today, about the HFPAs having expelled former eight-term president and five-decade-long member Philip Burke for the anonymously mm -hmm. leaked email of his bashing the Black Lives Matter movement. Obviously, the HFPA and Golden Globes have their own set of problems. BAFTAs is no stranger to similar controversies of their own similar making in that way. We've talked about it multiple times here. I'm wondering, since you're so tuned in and you talk to so many people in the industry, the problem obviously persists that we use the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes as these pillars of precursors in terms of shaping our Oscars lens and our conversations and our mm -hmm. content. Is it still, are they still viewed that way in the industry itself? Or are they getting near this point of no return of irreparable damage that they can't come back from? I think that, you know, th those two are different situations. Like HFPA is in deep trouble. They have, uh, they have just dug their hole deeper and deeper. And I think that it, we're going to see on May 6th, their, their self-imposed deadline, which is being watched very closely by Time's Up and these 100 plus PR firms that have that have put them on notice, you know, if they don't come back with major changes, not, you know, little things around the edges there, I could see there not being a, uh, golden globes a year from now. I, I wow. would guess that it's in everyone's interest to try to make it work because for the same reason that everybody, you know, talent showed up at the golden globes for decades, even though it's always been a bit of a shady organization, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's still very valuable in terms of, getting publicity at a time early, relatively early in the season in terms of the nominations. And then, you know, at a key moment when the show itself happens, uh, you know, there's, there's the downside is way outweighed by the upside until it becomes a, a thing where it looks like you're enabling a, a bigoted organization, which is what we're on the verge of right now. And so it's going to be incumbent up upon them to really, shake things up and i don't know if they i think they probably want to find a way to make it work but i don't know if it's possible because they have no incentive to all resign which is one of the things that time's up wants them to do and then reapply for membership 
you know, mm-hmm. they right now they're on a great, great, uh, great gravy train. And some of them are legitimate journalists. Many of them are not. They're there because they get pretty cool perks for writing just like six articles a year or whatever. Right. Um, and the other thing is like they're going to I think to to kind of significantly expand their membership the way that they've been urged to do, they going to have to also then change their membership requirements because there just aren't enough. I, you know, my sense is there are not enough foreign journalists, period, let alone uh, foreign journalists of color in Los Angeles or journalists for foreign outlets. And so it's, you know, it's a tricky one. But I think what what would make sense in the 21st century is for the HFPA to say, look, if you cover Hollywood, but you're not based in Hollywood, you're uh, eligible to be a member of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. I don't know why it the only reason it matters right now that you're in Hollywood is because they're the ones that love getting special screenings or press conferences or whatever. But, you know, there may have to be some compromises. And also, if the group is significantly expanded, they're less likely to get the same uh, volume and quality of gifts and events and whining and dining and traveling and all that, which they are quite uh, protective of. And mm. at the same time, if they don't, give it up a little bit they are not going to exist so it's they're in one situation i think BAFTA's in a a slightly different one where they've clearly been very at least under the regime that's been there the last year or two you know they're trying to do the right thing very much they may have even to some degree overcompensated this year where you wound up with nominees that a lot of folks had never even heard of right um and yet they did have a, a, a field of unprecedented diversity, which was something they were really needing to to do. Uh, but then after all that, they, they gave their best actor award to Anthony Hopkins over Chadwick Boseman. So, you know, it's <laughs> uh, they they have to be careful, too, about, you know, just being not tone deaf. Uh, um, but I don't think they're facing an existential threat in the way the HFPA is. And look, the the reality is the HFPA has never really there's never been any real reason to treat it as a as a barometer of how the Oscar race is going, because we're talking about 80 now it's 86 uh, Mm -hmm. members of uh, 86 journalists for outlets based abroad versus now almost 10,000 people who actually make movies in the Academy, only one of whom overlaps with both groups, an actress turned journalist. So what one group does should not really have any bearing on what the other group does, except in the sense that it, that the Globes help to help to kind of direct Academy members, potentially some of them to, you know, prioritize some movies over others when they're planning what to watch. And we do know, especially this year, that there have been, you know, members are watching fewer movies. And I think that's been the general pattern as TV has gotten better and as the Academy's gotten younger and you've had people who are busy with their own careers still, you know, they're they're not able to, you know, it, it pisses off a lot of people who are film buffs who follow this stuff online because they say, look, if, if I can watch all the contenders and I have to pay to see them or, you know, just, you know, and I have a full-time job also, why can't you do it? But, you know, 
that's this is just the reality of the situation. So um, I think that that's that's just something to think about as well. That, that's fascinating, and it yeah, absolutely. Somehow, somehow I, I want to even pull back a little further because you 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 touched on a lot of things that have just been burning us up all year. And in terms of the award season structure, the typical structure has been like film festivals to critics awards and press awards. The HFPA there and the Golden Globes kicks off the season, and we get to the industry awards. We get to the guilds. We get to the SAG. We get to the to the uh, academies, British and the American academies. And this has been the ecosystem for a while, but like, and maybe this is a microcosm of what the entire business is going to go through in other areas as well. I wonder if people are reconsidering, like you said, the Golden Globes as that gatekeeper, as that kickoff, and, and that's probably what they're reckoning with right now. What do you think is maybe an impossible hypothetical, but what do you think is an alternative? Will they beef up Critics' Choice? I mean, Critics' Choice has been out there for 26 years, right? So would they beef up Critics' Choice and make that the kickoff event? Would they event? Would they uh, invent a new uh, or promote uh, one of the Critics' Associations? Is there a void that can – or can anyone fill the void, I guess – with with the early award season, are we we're all gonna wait and see what the what happens with these Golden Globes? It, it's really a strange situation because, you know, I do think the Academy kind of, in, in terms of their nominations, they still listen. They still listen to the vetting process that was award season, based on how how the nominations shook out. I mean, you could still go back and derive how the season moved along. We didn't get shocked by too many Oscar nominations at the end of the day. So. So how do, how do you think next award season plays out with the Golden Globes? Are they really on the chopping block? It's it's up to them. It's going to be about how um, you know how they handle this, and really we're going to see in whatever it is, uh, sixteen days or something. Um, you know, I I and I don't know what they can how they can do. I hope they make major reforms but i don't know if if they are able to do what they are being asked to do by the times up and and publicists groups um even if they want to try to work with them which i think they you know their board at least does because they they realize that it is possible that they will they will be boycotted and they may look if they want to give out their own award if they don't want to change and they want to still they're not going to disappear, I don't think. I think they would still vote their own awards and hope that eventually they would be welcomed back into polite society. But um, I think there is a very real possibility that that they will be sort of shunned. But um, it's all up to them. I, I don't see another – I think the, the thing the Academy would like more than anything is, you know, not that they would ever say this on the record, but if, if all of these early groups, Critics' Choice, everybody would – sort of disappear overnight because what it does do is it makes the Oscars itself a little anticlimactic sometimes when, mm. you know, somebody sees that Daniel Kaluuya has won at every one of these other awards, they kind of get that he's probably going to win at the Oscars. And that doesn't take one of us to tell them that they can see it, which makes it less riveting to tune into the show. So uh, look, everybody's going to write off all of these award shows, including the Oscars, because they're going to have, you know, the Oscars, like all the ones that have come before it, are going to have just god-awful ratings. But I think that's more reflective of people's movie-going experience over this year than 
mm-hmm. than the overall trend. Yes, things have been trending downwards be- ratings wise because, but that's you know people's lives. We don't we don't have three networks anymore that we all watch. We don't have you know just life is more fragmented. So even though the viewership for the Oscars will be probably way down, it's still going to be more than any other live awards show I would suspect. Right. And so um, it's all relative. It's not going to be, nothing is the sort of communal event that it, that it used to be. The evening news, people don't watch in the same numbers, the, the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, major sporting events, the world series, they don't watch because everybody's doing different things. And that was not an option in the past. So I think that people are prematurely writing the obituary of, the Oscars when in fact it's just going to have to adapt a bit, but it's not, I don't see it, it going away. I don't think ultimately the golden Globes is going to go away. There will have to be some sort of a compromise reached. And then these others, I, you know, I don't, even if the golden Globes are basically off the charts for a year, maybe while they figure themselves out or whatever, uh, I don't know that. Uh, and I say this as a member of critics choice and BAFTA, believe it or not, I don't think either of those are, are, likely to you know necessarily shift their their dates much or or become a much bigger player than they already are in the award season i think it's just you know it's a like you know the hollywood film awards were the were the kickoff for a number of years and um i don't know i think people it's tough because when you go too early then what you find is that you're talking about you're, you're talking about movies that nobody in the real world has actually even seen or heard of. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that doesn't help your viewership either. It's, I mean, it's, you're bringing up so many good points. I just find myself nodding along. It's going to be fascinating <laughs> to see as a result of all these things, what's, what's going to come and what comes in the award seasons of next year's and future years. Uh, we'll start wrapping up. Uh, I guess talking about a question about this year's presentation of the Oscar specifically, uh, the bar for putting on an award show thus far during COVID has been inconsistent to say the least. And you released an article yesterday revealing that while the Oscars this year will be held in different venues within Hollywood, the attendees will not be required to wear masks while at union station, at least, which you noted in the article is a very different approach than how other award shows thus far have handled the mask wearing themselves. What's been the general reaction to that out there? Uh, as far as people you've talked to? I haven't, I'll be honest, I haven't heard much one way or the other, but I can tell you that it's the whole, it's, it's a little weird at a time when the president of the United States is still wearing a mask, even though he's vaccinated because he wants to model good behavior. And so I can assure you that the Drudge Report and other you know, right-leaning places are going to oh, yeah. dump all over the academy <laughs> for, you know, you're going to have a bunch of celebrities on camera without masks at a time when everybody else is telling, you know, the country to wear masks. And while I know why they feel they can do that, it's because they've done significant testing at great cost and all of that. It doesn't change the fact that the optics are are a little weird at a time you know, at this particular moment in time, um, I think the the Oscars. You know, let's see what they do with this show. I, I never want to bet against Steven Soderbergh, but I think this whole idea of of that you can just kind of reinvent the Oscars. A lot of people have thought they were going to do that, and it's 
never really worked out very well. This, I think it's going to be a, by necessity, a very different kind of show than we're used to much more, obviously intimate and cocktail party party sort of thing. Um, but do people know how to conduct themselves at the Oscars in that sort of way? Uh, you've got people that are going to be kicked out of the main room after being there for just one third of the whole show. Um, you're going to have zero press there, which I'll be honest, has pissed me off. And a number of my uh, colleagues who, you know, we say to the, we've said to the Academy, like we cover your crap all year. The, the, every virtual exhibition that you're going to announce for the museum, all of that. And the, we do that because there's sort of an understanding that the one time of year that we will get some cooperation from you will be the Oscars. That's the only right. thing that doesn't really move the needle for us to be doing stuff about your museum, but it's sort of a, a trade-off and, and, or, you know, not just the museum, but any different things that the Academy's involved with. So we're not happy with them because there's been, you know, somehow it's safe enough to accommodate 170 nominees, but it's not either large right. or safe enough to have even a pool of vaccinated reporters covering this, um, you know, on behalf of the others who can't be there, sort of the way that things are going on at the White House during the pandemic. So at a time when they're going to need more coverage than ever and to help raise awareness of the show and get people to care, um, I don't think they've handled that well. But uh, but in terms of the masks, it's it does seem like a bit of a weird decision. Well, we, we got a couple loose ends here. And again, we can't thank you enough. Um, a bright spot, maybe to, to change the gears for a second. A bright spot has been the lead categories, the lead acting categories, actor and actress. Just some great performances this year. Some some great snubbed performances this year from Zendaya, Sophia Loren, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in the actress category. Some great actors snubbed. My God, Delroy Lindo. But... We do have these two lead acting races, and we did have doubt with Anthony Hopkins, and we do have we do have a wide open race in actress. So, I, I, we know your predictions from the Feinberg forecast. I'm wondering if you're going to vacillate in your final one coming soon, but we'll have to we'll have to wait. I think your your issue's coming out today, as we we talked about uh, in the intro. What's your read on actress right now, and and do you think Chadwick is going to 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 get that that final uh, vote uh, on the Academy as well? I think that uh, at the end of the day, my guess is that Chadwick will still pull this out for best actor. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, even though they did not love Ma Rainey enough to nominate it for best picture, um, you know, which is a little disconcerting when his competition includes people who are from best picture nominees like Riz Ahmed, and Anthony Hopkins, probably Anthony Hopkins having won the BAFTA, that's the one that I'd be the most, uh, you know, kind of keeping an eye on. But I would still have to, you know, I'd be, I think it would still be quite shocking if Chadwick does not win. I mean, you would just hear the air go out of the room mm -hmm. um, because, of course, this is the last chance and uh, the only chance they've had to and ever will have to recognize him. So that could be a... Um, that's going to be a, a crazy moment if he doesn't win. And if he, if he does, it's going to be a, a very powerful moment. So that's that category for actress. Um, 
I really think any of the five could win. I <laughs> like, I wouldn't even be totally shocked if Vanessa Kirby won. Um, wow. It's, it's all over the place. I, you know, one of the thing, another thing that's in our, our Oscar issue is our first um, brutally honest ballot, um, which we do with, you know, try to find a really smart, interesting person this year. Uh, and that person happens to, I'm not, again, not in any way saying it's representative of others, but that's a, you know, we, there's a place where the person talks us through their entire thought process. And that is a Riz Ahmed, Vanessa Kirby voter. So for whatever that's worth. Um, But, you know, my personal guess is that SAG was an aberration. I don't, I think nobody was more surprised than uh, Viola Davis to find out that she had won. So I I don't know how that happened and I'm not necessarily expecting it to happen again. Um, I mean, if, if Viola and Chadwick win, for a movie that wasn't even nominated for best picture, that will be a first. Um, and that's part of why I'm skeptical that that will happen. Um, so my hunch is that it will be either Francis McDormand or Carrie Mulligan, which I know is not going up that much on a limb, but uh, I, I am actually leaning towards Francis McDormand. I know it would be her third and mm-hmm. just two years after her second or three years after her second. Um, but it's the movie that people have seen. It's the movie everybody seems to love. And if you love it, how do you not also love her performance? Also, the fact that Carrie Mulligan didn't win anything except the Critics' Choice, and there are zero uh, <laughs> critics in the Academy. That's not. That's not. Um, you know, she wasn't even nominated by BAFTA. Granted, they had a weird system this year. But um, I would just I, look. I would be delighted if she won. She's a terrific actress and nice person and all of that. But I just kind of have a feeling that we, uh, you know, if, if, if I wouldn't feel confident about any of the picks, I'm going to have to pick the person who's there for the movie that is by my sense, the most seen and most liked of the year. It makes a lot of sense. And it would also make my heart weep for all the Leo can't win for once upon a time in Hollywood because he just won for the Revenant stuff. I had to swallow last year. uh, uh, Again, really appreciate Scott. We'll get you out of here. One final question. And maybe it's not the most burning and pressing question, but it's one that's certainly big. (laughs) It is for one of we Mike's, but it's been something that's baffled us for a couple years about one particular branch within the Academy. My octopus teacher for documentary feature. Why is this the front runner kind of out of nowhere, especially within this branch? That's been so elusive in terms of their understanding, having, you know, not nominating Jane, uh, treating Apollo 11, Dick Johnson is dead the way they did. Won't you be my neighbor is another one that was an oversight. Is it more my octopus teacher, more a credit to Netflix and the accessibility of that film. But how is this the front runner for doc feature this year? Well, I think this this has really been an organic, a true organic, uh, you know, fan favorite where not even Netflix thought it was their, I don't think Netflix thought it was one of their three most um, likely contenders. They, they thought, and by the way, it could still be uh, Crip Camp. They thought that was their best shot. They, um, you know, there were, there were several others that they, we're looking at as better bets. Um, and 
maybe with good reason. But what happened, I think, honestly, with my octopus teacher, it's a visually beautiful movie about the being out, you know, being in the great outdoors in a year when nobody could be outside. And I think that there's something about, Mm. you know, that that may lead people to prioritize it over just very well done, but further depressing stuff like uh like time where you know you're just kind of reminded of how screwed in some ways our our country is and um so look i i still think that it's not a slam dunk that my octopus teacher will win i i I think crip camp or time could pull it out um but i think that my octopus teacher is just the one that people enjoy the most the others are interesting or thought-provoking or other things but people come away enthusiastic about my octopus teacher in the way that they did, you know, with probably the closest comp would be uh, March of the Penguins a few Mm. years back where it's like, it's not something you would think you would get that excited about. And yet there's just something charming about, uh, about these kind of cute creatures that you never looked at in the same way. And anyway, we'll see. But uh, I, I think that it's just, Maybe that it's sort of feel good. So well, when in doubt, focus on the focus your documentary on the cute animal. I guess is the yeah uh, right the right. answer there. I know I'm waiting for somebody to make dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'll be a runaway, no doubt. Yeah, yeah right. I agree right. with that. <laughs> we cannot thank you enough, thank our dear you. friend of uh, the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, thank you once again for joining us in this what's become a tradition. Sure. We can't be uh, happier for it. Take care, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Well, three years in a row, I guess, makes it a start of a streak, and it's quite the streak for two regular guys from Connecticut who started an Oscars podcast to have being able to talk to another guy who started an Oscars podcast who's from Connecticut and is truly one of the the greatest in the game to do it, one of the best interviewers we have. And as we keep learning every time we talk to him, one of the best interviewees as well as Scott Feinberg and his Feinberg final uh, Oscars preview rolls out here for us here on Mike, Mike and Oscar. Once again, to run down where you can find Scott's work, you can follow him on Twitter at Scott Feinberg. Once again, that's F-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. You can find him at Scott Scott underscore Feinberg on Instagram. You can also follow the Hollywood Reporter at THR on Twitter, all letters, letter T, letter H, letter R, and at Hollywood Reporter, no the, just at Hollywood Reporter on Instagram. Uh, Mike, we're so fortunate every year to have Scott grace us with his presence. Uh, This was one of the best yet, I felt. One of the highlights of our every year, because Scott, yeah, Scott's from where we're from. Mike, Mm -hmm. we're all from the Valley in Connecticut. And the, the fact that he's uh, living the dream out there and, and covering the business full time, it's, it's really an inspiration to us. And, Absolutely. And certainly, I just, it's just great listening uh, at Awards Chatter, THR Awards Chatter, that podcast. And it's a great read. Every, every week when Scott's putting out multiple articles, he had a couple over the last few days, Mike, at HollywoodReporter.com. And he's got a couple more debuting for the uh, the annual Oscars issue that has released today from The Hollywood Reporter with the Feinberg forecast, with the brutally honest Oscars ballot that, you know, th- these are highlights of our every year and uh, read them and you'll see why. So yeah. please. Highlights of our year, whether we were doing the show or not, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> Words of wisdom, those, those are it right there. Follow Scott Feinberg. If for some reason you haven't listened to any of our other shows and this is like the first time you're with us, we got two great 
other episodes with Scott in years past, and those are still listenable as well to plug ourselves for a second because, yeah, we did a lot of bio stuff with him uh, up to this point. And so to go back and listen to those, we'll have the website up soon, hopefully, and uh, you'll be able to find them easier. But uh, definitely Scott Feinberg, third year in a row, it's 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 a highlight of this podcast no doubt no doubt about our it. thanks to scott absolutely our thanks to all our guests that we've had in the lead up to this oscar sunday uh, mm-hmm. it's not quite over we're not quite done you're going to hear from us one more time prior to oscar sunday but as far as what we need to hear from the immediate future from you dear listener as always is your thoughts whether on this interview we had with scott or anything else we do here in the mmo universe you can leave us those on our social medias once you're done following scott on all of his we are mike mike and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available wherever you hear podcasts, including and especially the Apple podcast app. If you're listening to us on Apple podcasts, if that's also where you listen to awards chatter from Scott, why don't you leave us both five-star reviews? We would truly both appreciate it. Michael, we gave him the words of wisdom. We gave him a little preview of what's coming next, but why don't you fill them in of what to expect from us to and through Oscar Sunday? Well, we're going to have our Oscar morning special, and we're going to probably do that a day earlier, we think, we hope, we, do, we don't quite know yet, but the Indie Spirits, they are broadcasted this Thursday night, so Friday we're hoping to record and uh, hopefully get that out to you ASAP for later in this week. But guys, go back and listen to this season. I mean, we got six featured interviews. We got a couple uh, shows that we're really proud of with other guests leading into it, David Long and, and uh, reviewing the Snyder Cut, for Christ's sake. With yeah, feels there. That was a, that was a lot of fun for me, uh, filling in for you there, Mike. But we had, we had uh, Adnan Verk, we had uh, Amanda of Swell Entertainment, we had uh, Izzy of Be Kind Rewind, we had Jazz Tanke of Variety, and of course Eric Weber returned to our show from Awards Ace. It's just been uh, an incredible season for us. Uh, we had Ann Thompson earlier in the season, and you know we're, we're not holding up foam fingers in the air. I know they're competing uh, trades, etc., but we we really love love them all, and we love a lot of people in this space and, and the work that they do. The the fact that they come on our show is is just. <laughs> boggles my mind but it's also the like the coolest thing in the world like we're not into interviewing all the movie stars that's not our thing but we we do get uh get a little starstruck because again i mean i I was in my dorm room waiting for the page to refresh remember when internet took forever to and and i had this old just box of a computer took up my whole desk and i'm waiting for the internet to refresh and and read scott feinberg's work at that uh i don't even remember if he was at hollywood reporter at that point but i just remember following him so and i was gonna say the reason these trades are competing is because all this talent they have they're all so good and yeah we're yeah. very uh we're very fortunate that they are, are agree to give us part of their day as we've been lucky enough to have all of them join us on so yeah definitely go follow them come follow us listen to us let us know your thoughts guys it's almost time we're almost at the finish line when reality sucks You can come break down the Oscars and give a final preview with us and our friends. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you very soon. See you.